Well, with the Lord's help, let's turn back to the passage we read there in First Samuel in chapter 17. Um, the, the biblical narrative is, um, in many ways, is a narrative uh, about warfare. Of course, the biblical narrative is about peace, but um, the idea of peace presupposes the idea of warfare. And, and the biblical narrative, it, it contains much uh, by way of warfare. After the fall uh, in the Garden of Eden, that uh, commences a spiritual conflict. Um, uh, and that's a conflict that, that runs right the way through um, the pages of Scripture. You have... Um, the forces of darkness on one side, spiritually speaking, uh, and you have the forces of the Most High God uh, on the other side. And both these uh, forces are in constant battle. And that spiritual um, battle that exists between God and, and um, the devil himself and, and the forces of the evil one, that conflict uh, lies in the background of many of the conflicts that you, you find uh, in the pages of Scripture, many of the physical uh, conflicts that you find in the pages of Scripture. Uh, and there are many um, physical battles in, in the Bible, um, especially uh, probably in the Old Testament. There's, there's a, a number of, of battles. Very often you see um, the army of, of Israel uh, doing battle with their enemies. And that's what we see here in this passage. You have Israel and the Philistines and they're at war with each other. But you don't just see battles in terms of armies battling with other armies. Um, you also see individual battles um, in the narrative of Scripture as well. Uh, and that's, of course, exactly what we have here in this passage. You have this individual battle between um, David and Goliath. Probably the uh, greatest um, battle in the Old Testament in terms of um, individual battles anyway, the greatest uh, battle uh, of the Old Testament. But although it's perhaps arguably the, the greatest battle of the Old Testament, it's not the greatest battle of all time. Because this battle here between David and uh, Goliath, this is, a, this is a forerunner really. It's a forerunner for another battle that would take place um, hundreds of years after this event. Uh, and that battle that would take place was a battle between the greater than David, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the enemy of our souls, um, the devil, uh, Satan himself. And that um, battle that took place wasn't a battle that took place on a normal battleground, that battle between um, Jesus and the devil. That is a battle that took place at the hill of Golgotha itself. At Calvary, so there you have this great spiritual conflict uh, between uh, Jesus and the devil. And that is uh, the greatest spiritual battle of all time. And that particular battle at Calvary there, that is a battle where, from a human perspective, uh, Jesus seemed to look defeated. Um, Jesus, from a, a human perspective, seemed to be cornered by the devil. Uh, but yet against everyone's expectation, um, humanly speaking, uh, Christ walks away from that battle scene at Calvary victorious, much like uh, what we see here um, with uh, David. And there's a sense in which every uh, biblical battle, um, or maybe not every, certainly many of the biblical battles, are illustrative of that great climactic battle between Jesus and the devil. And I want us to, to have that in, in mind as we approach the, the narrative of 
David and, and Goliath here. As we look at this passage and as we go through the passage, uh, we'll, we'll look at it, the passage itself, but we'll try and see beyond the, the physical and, and try and see the, the spiritual uh, parallels that we can make between uh, this battle here and the, the greater uh, battle between the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and his enemy, uh, the devil of the cross of Calvary. So let's have a look at the, the passage itself. Then. Now here, um, Israel are at war with uh, the Philistines. So at this point in the narrative, Saul is the, the king of Israel. Now it's a wee bit uh, confusing because actually Saul has been rejected as king by this point. Um, Saul had committed certain sins and as a result of the sins that he'd committed, um, the Lord had actually rejected him as the king of Israel by this point. And God had actually already identified David. Um, the young shepherd boy, he'd identified and had David anointed as the next king. So Saul has been rejected. David is the next king. But people don't really know about it. People don't really know about it at this stage. So the way things are, Saul is, is still effectively acting like the king here. And a situation is developing in this valley of Elah. You've got the, the Philistine army and the Israelite army. And they're camped opposite each other. One is on one mountain and the other is on the other mountain. And this giant of a man, a man called Goliath, he steps forward into the valley. And, and he challenges one of the Israelites to a duel. And he says, if, if you win, then we will be your servants. And if I win, then you will be our servants. So the narrative here very much begins with the lens firmly focused on Goliath. It's that initial bit, it's all about Goliath. So in verse 4 all the way down to verse 10 there. It's all about Goliath. It's, it's like the, the lens is zoomed right in on Goliath. It's all about how impressive Goliath is. It's all about how strong uh, Goliath is. It's all about how, how big this Philistine giant is. And he's described in, in quite a, a, an amazing way there in terms of his physical splendor and his might. And of course, famously, uh, he's nine foot tall when you um, translate the, uh, the biblical uh, unit there. So he's a giant of a man, an absolute giant of a man. And an aside here, but it's interesting that they've actually found um, remains in the, the Transjordan region of people which were actually from this, from this time period of people who were very very large they, they've actually found bones of uh, I think it's women who were actually nine foot tall so it's interesting how we read these things and actually um, archaeology today actually uh, uncovers and, and shows that many of the things we read in scripture are actually uh, true uh, and that's often the case and here you have uh, Goliath and he's presented to us as this uh, highly uh, impressive uh, figure and when you're reading these verses you, you almost feel scared yourself reading it um, you feel scared for the Israelites because he just seems so uh, mighty and if this is a battle based on how things seem or um, how things look then there's only one winner here and, and it's not David and it's not Israel it's going to be uh, Goliath and remember, we're looking at this with Calvary in uh, the background, in the shadow here. And Goliath in this uh, battle is illustrative of the devil himself. And uh, like uh, Goliath, the devil can seem to us incredibly powerful. You know, we sometimes look at the devil and we, we, we sometimes think he's invincible. We sometimes look at him and, and think that uh, he's undefeatable. Uh, and when we consider the, the battle at um, Calvary... 
that's, that's also the case. Because there you look at the devil and he looks so powerful. There in that scene, you know when you're reading through Psalm 22 and the strong bulls of Bashan are circling around and, and you read that, that setting, that scene, it looks like the devil's incredibly powerful, incredibly mighty indeed. And from a human perspective, he looks so much stronger than Jesus. Jesus, almost humanly speaking, looks weak. The devil is the one who looks strong in that uh, particular battle. And here in this battle in the Valley of Elah, you're struck by the outward display of the power of this giant Goliath. But then in verse 12 to 23, the lens of the narrative changes a wee bit. So you're focused in on Goliath initially. Then the lens of the narrative pans away from Goliath and focuses in on this young boy called David. Look in verse 12 there. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. So, in other words, he's saying here, David was a son of a fairly obscure, insignificant family. We've just heard all this wonderful description about Goliath and how strong he is, and then all of a sudden, and now David was the son of just some reasonably obscure and insignificant family. David is being presented to us here as not only being part of an insignificant family, but he is presented to us as the least of this insignificant family. Because we read there that he's the youngest of the sons. And he was the one who was in charge of looking after the sheep. So he, he was, you know, he was, he was the, the, the most insignificant of this, relatively speaking, insignificant family. And we note that the only reason he's even here in the first place, the only reason he's in this scene is because his father has sent him on an errand um, to deliver some food uh, to his brothers who were fighting. So David is a nobody here in the scene. In terms of the pecking order of importance, he is way, way down. Way, way down. All he's doing here, he's not even a soldier, he's not anyone important, he's just delivering some food for his brothers who were soldiers here in this scene. So the lens of the narrative now shows us David as being weak, as being young, as having no status, as not being particularly important or significant at all. And he's presented it to us in that way in stark contrast to Goliath. Because Goliath is presented as this kind of um, mighty and this very much powerful figure. And just like we can think of Goliath as being like the devil in terms of the, the, the battle at Calvary. So David here is of course illustrative of Christ. Because David is a type of Christ. Now, that means that David is acting like a pointer towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that we can take parallels from uh, David even here in this battle, and we can take those parallels and learn something uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ, make connections between the two. And here we see David, uh, relatively speaking, insignificant individual, not particularly strong, not uh, particularly uh, mighty, and in no way... Uh, looking like a, a mighty uh, leader at all. And that is exactly how we encounter Jesus in uh, the pages of the New Testament. He enters into the, the battleground of this world and he looks like the most unlikely of leaders, doesn't he? When you look at Jesus, he looks like the most unlikely of leaders. He looks like the most unlikely of kings. Now, like David, he's born in Bethlehem. Um, uh, but unlike David, he, he's, he's born in fairly obscure surroundings in a, in a stable. Uh, he's, he's born into a, a relatively speaking, insignificant family. Um, Jesus is uh, raised in 
um, place uh, called uh, Nazareth, which wasn't really a respectable uh, place to be, to be from at all. And like young David here, Jesus had no important status. You know, he, didn't, he wasn't born as a king, really. He wasn't, um, as an earthly king that is, he wasn't born uh, as, a, as a scribe or a Pharisee or he didn't become a scribe or a Pharisee. He didn't have a status like um, perhaps some of the other uh, religious leaders had. And like uh, David, he looked weak and helpless. And, and that's, that's, humanly speaking, how you see Christ at the cross as well. Not just through his life, but especially at, at Calvary. You look at him there and, humanly speaking, he looks weak in contrast to uh, the power of the enemy, the power of the evil one. But as we'll soon learn, appearances can very much be uh, deceptive. And we'll learn that in a, in a few moments' time. But although David might have uh, looked weak here in this passage, as soon as he speaks, his words show a, a strength and a, and a power that belie his, his outward uh, appearance. His words show tremendous strength of faith. He looks weak, he looks young, but when he speaks, wow, does he seem mighty and does he seem um, powerful. And you see there in verse uh, 26, so by this point David sees his brothers, he comes out, he sees his brothers, and he goes out to talk to his brothers. And while he's talking to his brothers, um, Goliath comes out. And uh, Goliath has been coming out um, every day, he's been coming out time and, and time again. And when he comes out, he's um, effectively taunting the, the army of Israel. And David, in, in verse 26 there we read, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? Tremendous words there. Amazing strength of faith in the, the words of uh, David there. The rest of the army of Israel, including Saul, uh, the king, they're too scared to confront Goliath. They're too scared to challenge Goliath. Uh, they're certainly too scared to, to fight with Goliath. They're, they're filled with this sense of fear. Fear for their lives. That's the emotion that, that is driving them just now. But David is driven by a different kind of emotion. David here, he's angry. He's angry that this giant Goliath is defying the armies of the living God. That he's defying, effectively, God himself. And, and David's faith shines through here. And the strength of faith shines through. Um, you see, the others are, are overwhelmed by Goliath. And the presence of Goliath. And the might of Goliath. They can't see past Goliath. But David, his faith, lifts his eyes up higher. His eyes are lifted and he's able to see the, the infinitely greater strength and power of the living God. Goliath is nothing compared to God. And David sees that. Israel, they, well, most of Israel don't seem to see that, but David does. He sees that. And you notice that he, he says the living God. It's, that's a, it's a wee phrase, and perhaps you can read it and think it's not particularly significant, but it is. You know, he doesn't just say the armies of God. The armies of the living God. And here it's as though he's saying, yes, Goliath, you are a giant. Yes, you are mighty. But we have God on our side and our God is a living God. A God who is present with us. A God who is alive here today. And a God who will not allow his name to be dishonoured in the way that you're dishonouring the name of 
the living God here to David. David is sure God will defend the honour of his name. He's sure, absolutely sure, God will not allow his name to be dragged through the mud like this. And I think we can do well to learn from the faith of David here ourselves. Because often when we see the power of evil at work and when we see its force, we can become discouraged. And we see the power of evil at work all around us. We see it even perhaps in our own lives. And when we see that, we can become scared. And we can forget that God is a living God. That God is actually with us. Let's not um, fall into that kind of way of thinking. Let us remember that our God is always present and he is very much living. And when we see the enemy trampling the name of God underfoot, as happens all the time in our society today, when we see that happening, let's have the faith of David. The faith of David, that faith which looked to God uh, to, to answer and to protect the honour and to protect the glory of his name. And of course, there was no one who had greater concern for the honour of the name of God than Jesus himself, than the greater than David. Is that not why he did all uh, that he did? So David here shows his faith. And then Eliab, David's eldest brother, um, he hears David speaking. And Eliab got very angry with David. And in verse 28, uh, Eliab starts to talk down to, to David there. And he's, he's effectively saying to David there, what are you even doing here, David? You're not a soldier. Um, you're a shepherd. You don't belong here. Stop talking like that. Go back and look after the sheep. Go back to where you belong. And that was very much spoken in a, in a derogatory sense. And you notice here that the opposition that David faces here isn't just from Goliath. The opposition begins from David's own side, from the Israelites. He faces opposition from his own people, his own family, here, his own brother. You know, it's one thing to be opposed by the enemy. It's another thing when that opposition comes from those on your own side. And that might be something that uh, you might have experienced yourselves. That kind of opposition from perhaps even uh, people who call themselves brothers and, and sisters in Christ. Opposition from within. That's exactly what um, David is facing here. And of course, again, this is something that the greater than David experienced uh, regularly. Uh, Jesus didn't just face opposition from the devil. He didn't just face opposition from the spiritual forces of evil. He faced opposition from his own people. And we read that right throughout the gospel narrative. He faced opposition even from uh, within his own close companions. And of course he faced opposition even from his own brothers. And what would they say? They would say, you're not the Messiah. You're not the Son of God. You're none of these things. You're just Jesus the carpenter. That's all you are. Not the Savior. Not the Messiah. And of course that then came to the, the supreme culmination in the, in the cross itself when they, they're standing, the crowds are standing there and they're shouting, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Opposition from within his own people, just like David is facing here, opposition from his own brother. But somehow Saul um, hears about the, the words of um, David here. And, and Saul sends for David. And the very fact that he sends 
for David. That's a, that's a damning indictment on Saul himself. Because Saul was the king. He was the leader and he should have shown true leadership. And nobody else was wanting to fight Goliath. So he should have stepped up and he should have taken to the battlefield and he should have taken Goliath on himself like a true leader and like a true king. But he's scared. This man, Saul here, he is scared and he will clutch at any straws available to get out of this. To get out of having to fight Goliath. And when he hears about the words of this young boy and the, the bravery and the faith that he seems, to be, he seems to be showing in his words, he calls for him. Get that young boy. Get that young boy and bring him here. And when Saul sees um, David, he, he says to him in, in verse 33 there, when he realizes just how, perhaps how young he is, he says, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David doesn't stop there. David, he responds by again showing his faith in God. And he says, no, no, so I am ready to fight this man. When I was a shepherd, I would fight bears and lions and I would kill them. I will be able to take this uh, Philistine. And he says, the God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. In other words, David is saying, it's not by my might and not by my strength that I will have this deliverance, but it's because the Lord is with me and the Lord will give me that deliverance. And, and here, David's faith, it's, it's working backwards and forwards. You notice that? It's a faith that's going both ways. He looks back at his past and sees how the Lord has delivered him in the past, what the Lord has done for him in the past, and he uses that as fuel for his faith that the Lord will deliver him in the future and that the Lord will deliver him in whatever difficulties he faces. So his faith looks backwards and his faith looks forwards because that's how faith should work. And that's how it should work in our lives as well. You see, one of our problems is that we can have a tendency to forget the Lord's deliverances in our lives. It can easily happen. You can forget the way in which the Lord delivered you from darkness and brought you into light. You perhaps were very aware of it at the time, but it's amazing when time goes on. You can forget these things. You can forget how the Lord delivered you from struggles of doubt and perhaps other kinds of difficulties and sufferings and hardships. You can forget these things. You can forget perhaps how the Lord um, delivered you by giving you special strength in a particular situation to get you through something. Uh, again, at the time, you could never have forgotten it. But it's amazing. With time, as time goes on, you forget these things. We forget and we lose sight of his past deliverances. And when that happens, losing sight of God's past deliverances results in our losing or our weakening of our faith in the difficulties of the here and in the difficulties of the now, in today. And that's exactly what's going on here with the Israelites. They've forgotten everything that God has done for them before. And as soon as this Goliath, this giant Goliath comes out, they think, we've had it. But not David. Not David. David David is different. He recalls these past deliverances. And that strengthens his faith in the face of this threat that lies ahead of him now. His faith looks backwards and then it looks forwards as well. And after David says these things, Saul uh, gives him the go-ahead. Well, he couldn't really anything but give him the go-ahead after that particular um, speech. And he goes, he says, on you go, 
And uh, Saul, of course, wants to ensure that David is as uh, protected as possible. So he gives him his armor and his shield and all of these things. And David tries to uh, put all these things on, but uh, of course uh, he's um, struggling. He barely uh, move with these things. So he discards all of it. And, and he goes into the valley of Elah with a, a shepherd's staff and um, a, a pouch, a sling, and a few smooth stones. Five uh, smooth stones that he puts in his pouch. And there, as he walks out onto that particular uh, battleground, scarcely could you conceive of a more uneven fight. You couldn't, could you, really? A young boy with no real weapons and no armor, and he's going out to fight a giant of a man, a warrior, an experienced warrior, someone who has got multiple weapons and someone who's covered head to toe in armor. You, you can scarcely uh, try and conceive of, of a, a, a fight that's more uneven than that. And when we look at the cross of Christ from a, a human perspective, we can say the same. Because that's how it looks from, from a human perspective. It looks like an uneven fight, does it not? Because you see Jesus there and, and humanly speaking, he looks to have no defense. He looks to have no weapons from what we can see or humanly speaking. He looks to have no weapons, no defense at all. He's, he's hanging there. And then you look at the devil and the devil looks like he's full of weaponry and full of defense. And you, you look at it and you think, well, again, there's, there's surely only going to be one winner here. And as David uh, comes out, Goliath meets him and he mocks him. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He mocks David. And you know that's a, a reminder as well of the mocking that Christ faced on the cross. Remember, he faced much by way of mockery on the cross. And that mockery was of course, ultimately orchestrated by the, the spiritual Goliath, the devil himself. The devil is, is at work here, um, stirring the crowd, uh, causing them to, to sneer and to chant and to revile and to ridicule the Lord Jesus Christ there on the cross. Just as Goliath is, is giving um, this kind of mockery here, so Christ uh, faced the same thing on the cross. But here David isn't uh, scared. He's not uh, scared of, of Goliath. And in uh, faith, David responds to the, the jeers of Goliath here, and he says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. In other words, today, Goliath, I will crush your head. And is that not exactly what the seed of the woman was going to do? To the seed of the serpent. To crush his head. And here. This is a picture of the, the spiritual reality. Of these things at Calvary. Where there the seed of the woman did just that. The seed of the woman crushed. The head of the seed. Of the serpent. And sure enough here. David he brings out his sling. He fires his stone and the stone gets Goliath in the only unprotected part of his body and his head and Goliath uh, falls over and uh, then David obviously goes up and he, he doesn't have a sword himself so David takes Goliath's own sword and, and he kills Goliath. He, he takes uh, Goliath's head 
often. Remember, where we're looking at all of this, looking at this uh, battle with Calvary very much in the background. This, this scene is, is we're, we're using it as an illustration uh, for the events uh, of Calvary itself. And there at Calvary, there you see Jesus walking out. And as I said, he is, from human perspective, unarmed. He's there on the cross naked. He has nothing. Absolutely nothing at all. And like David, he seems defenseless. He seems weak. He looks as though he is about to be destroyed. And as I mentioned, just as Goliath's power and might was evident here in the valley of Elah, so too the spiritual forces of darkness look mighty here at the cross. They look powerful here at Calvary. The, the strongholds of Bashan are there. The, the picture is and it looks as though the, the spiritual forces have been unleashed on Jesus. And just as Goliath has been taunting David, so the taunts and jeers come at Jesus. And they come from the crowds around the cross. And you know, Goliath, he would have looked at David. And he would have seen David coming up to him with that little stick in his hands. Because the, the sling, it was, just a, it was just a stick, really. And he would have seen that and he would have thought, well... I'm definitely going to win this battle. Victory is definitely mine. And I think it's fair to say the devil would have dared to have thought the same thing himself at Calvary. When he sees Jesus there with his hand nailed to a, a bit of wood, nailed to the cross, the devil would surely have looked at Jesus there and, and perhaps dared to think that he was going to win. I'm going to win here. I'm going to defeat this one. I'm going to defeat the Son of God. And as Jesus bows his head and gives up his spirit and as he dies, perhaps at that point the devil did actually think he'd won. Perhaps the devil did actually think that he'd defeated the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, that wasn't the case at all, was it? Because Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was actually the greatest victory that this world has ever known. Because with the death of Jesus, he destroyed the power of sin over God's people. With the death of Jesus, he destroyed the grip that the devil had on every single one of the Lord's people. And he did that through death itself. And there's tremendous irony there. There's irony there. Because death is, of course, the, the, the weapon of um, Satan himself. Death is his weapon. And in the David and Goliath narrative, David defeats Goliath with Goliath's own sword. It's, it's Goliath's own weapon that defeats Goliath. And that's the same thing at the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, he defeats the devil by using the devil's own weapon, death itself. He turns the devil's own weapon on him and he achieves the victory through death itself. And now Christ stands on the battleground today with the sword of the enemy in his hand and he casts that sword to the ground. He, he disarms the enemy, disarms the enemy. He has the victory and he turns to us and, and he says, will you share in this victory that I have purchased? Will you share in the salvation that I have purchased for my people? And he says, to do that, you must put your faith in me. And you who are the Lord's here today, you look at Christ standing on this battleground and you look at him with his blood-stained hands, his, his pierced hands. And of course, 
Uh, normally, people stand on a, on a battleground with the blood of others on their hands. But Christ stands there on the battleground with his own blood. His own blood on his hands. And he says, I have fought this battle to save you, the Lord's people. And you see him there, everything he has gone through, the pains, the suffering. And you see him there victorious on the battleground. And he says, I have done it for you. I have done it to save you. Amazing grace. Amazing love that the Lord would go to such a battle. He didn't have to go into that battle for us, but he did. He did because of his love for his people and for his grace towards us. And God willing, we will sit tomorrow at the Lord's table and we will marvel at that victory that he has achieved for us as we see his hands, as we see the the piercing, the blood, as we see him bearing our sins. As we see him achieving that victory, we know that he didn't do that for, for others. He did it for us, the Lord's people, those who are his own. So we'll stand and we'll call God's name in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the victory that you have achieved for us at Calvary, as we have thought about the battle of Calvary there and as we have looked at it through the lens even of that Old Testament battle between David and Goliath, we are reminded that the whole of Scripture points forward to Christ, that Christ is to, Christ is to be found as a, a golden thread from the very beginning of Genesis right through to the very end of Revelation. And help us to marvel at that, to marvel at how uh, you reveal yourself to us, even in the pages of the Old Testament Scriptures. And we ask, O oh Lord, that we might continue to meditate on that victory that was achieved for us. Not merely the, the victory of David over Goliath, but the, the greater victory of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ over the devil himself. That we have been freed from his grips. That sin no longer has dominion over us. We have been released because of the blood of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And help us to remember that blood, God willing, tomorrow. Cleanse us from sin, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll uh, close by singing to God's praise in Psalm 24. Psalm uh, 24, page uh, 230. Scottish Psalter. And we'll sing the, the last four stanzas there, verse 7 to 10. A picture of the king victorious. <clears throat> ye gates lift up your heads on high, ye doors that last for aye. Be lifted up, that so the king of glory enter me. But who of glory is the king, the mighty lord is this. Even that same lord that great in might and strong in battle is. Ye gates, lift up your heads, ye doors, doors that do last for it. Be lifted up, that so the King of glory enter me. But who is he that is the King of glory? Who is this? The Lord of hosts, and none but he the King of glory is. So we'll sing verse 7 to 10 to the praise of our King. <coughs>
Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit continue with you all now and forevermore. Amen.